This morning's reading comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Father, we do pray this morning that you would bless the preaching of your word. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for attentive hearts and minds, and we pray that you would manifest your presence as the word of God is preached by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Today is October 31st, 504 years ago on October 31st, a little-known German monk named Martin Luther walked up to the castle church door in the town of Wittenberg, and he nailed to that castle church door his complaints against the Roman Catholic Church. Now, those later became known as the 95 Theses, and that bold act really was what inaugurated the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. So, today, around the world, literally millions of Protestants celebrate October 31st as Reformation Day. Not Halloween, but Reformation Day. Now, October 31st, 2021, marks the 500th anniversary of another very important event. Four years after Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, he stood trial at the Imperial Diet of Worms in the town of Worms in Germany, and he stood trial because of his conviction that one is saved by faith alone, and furthermore, the Scripture alone is our only authority, and for those beliefs, He stood on trial before the most powerful people in Europe and made a bold stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that event is what really launched the Protestant church. That event was really the climax of the Reformation. So, 1517, October 31st was the the, the 95 Theses, but 1521, 500 years ago, was the Diet of Worms. Now, I say that word very carefully. It's, it's spelled like worms, but it's not worms. It's Wurms, which is a town in Germany. I'll talk more about that later. But in light of this great history, in light of being Protestants, and in light of these anniversaries, it seemed fitting to me to pause our Gospel of John series and talk about this wonderful doctrine of justification from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And we're going to look at that text through the life of Martin Luther. And we're going to look at three, the three important phases of his life. Now, these verses really have the power to radically transform your life. 
They transformed Luther's life, and as a result, they transformed the history of Western civilization. But Luther didn't always understand these verses appropriately. First, there was a striving for righteousness in Luther's life. Then there was an understanding of righteousness. Then finally, there was a receiving of righteousness. So those three movements are the three points of this morning's sermon. First is a striving for righteousness. Look with me at Romans 1, 16 and 17. This really is the theme of the entire book of Romans and a wonderful summary of justification. Verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, we're going to focus on verse 17 almost exclusively this morning. Uh, and in that verse, Paul writes, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does it mean that God reveals His righteousness in the gospel? Righteousness is a moral quality of God. When the Bible says that God is righteous, it means that God always does what is right, and He never ever does what is wrong, and God Himself is that standard of righteousness. Now, Martin Luther was totally fixated on verse 17. He strove for years and years and years to understand what Paul meant when he said, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. He writes this about verse 17, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteous whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. My situation was that although an impeccable monk I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Luther believed that that phrase, righteousness of God, found in verse 17, meant that God displays His righteousness in judging sinners. When God demonstrates or reveals that righteousness, God is basically saying, I am a righteous judge, and because you are unrighteous, I'm going to display my righteousness in judging you. As a result of this understanding, Luther was terrified because he knew that God demanded perfect righteousness, perfect law-keeping, and Luther knew that no matter how hard he tried, he could never, ever be righteous enough. This meant was that he was in deep trouble. Now, it's important for us to understand that in the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, everyone believed in the doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory was a place where the saints would go after death, and for literally thousands of years, they would have the temporal consequences of their sins uh, purged by fire, burned away with fire. Let me show you two images of how people viewed purgatory. Is that a very happy place? Yeah, how about the next one? Okay, so Luther had these images in mind when he contemplated his death. 
Again, even the most righteous Christians were taught that when you die, you go to purgatory, this place with flames and goblins, and you have the temporal consequences of your sins purged away. And when Luther thought about that, he was rightfully terrified. And by the way, the Roman Catholic Church still believes in purgatory, sadly. So Luther wanted to be righteous because he wanted to earn his way to heaven. So what did he do? He strove with all of his might to be righteous, to avoid purgatory and then to avoid hell. What did his striving look like? His striving led him to um, leave law school. So Luther had a brilliant mind, and his father was somewhat wealthy for the time, so his father sacrificed a great deal and sent his young, bright son, Luther, to law school. In July of 1505, while Luther was in law school, he was traveling back and forth between law school and home, and he got caught in this massive thunderstorm. And he was terrified. So what did he do? He cried out to St. Anne. Why St. Anne? Because St. Anne was the patron saint of minors, and his father was a minor. So he cried out in terror. Show the picture of Luther. It's going to magically appear. There he is. He's terrified. He cries out and says, St. Anne, save me, and I'll become a monk. Why did Luther want to become a monk? More than likely, it was because he knew in the late Middle Ages that if you really wanted to assure your place in heaven, the best thing to do was to become a nun or a priest. And so Martin Luther to his father's great chagrin, left law school and pursued holy orders. He joined the Augustinian monastery to become um, a priest because he thought that if he really, really wanted to get to heaven, it would really help to serve God full time in ministry. Later on in life, he said that he entered the monastery at at the age of 21, not only to learn theology, but to save his soul. His striving also led him to falter at his first mass. After training for years and years and years to be a priest, he finally had the privilege of performing his very first mass. And Roman Catholics teach that when the priest prays over the bread and the wine, the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus. So Luther thought that he was holding in his hands the actual body and blood of Jesus, and again, he was terrified. Listen to what he says. At these words, that is the words of consecration, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue should I address such majesty? seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince. Who am I that I should lift mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God." Bottom line is, Luther was terrified of being in the presence, the very presence of a holy and righteous God, because he knew that he was not righteous. And so he really mumbled his way through his first mass, and then he fled the church in tears, 
And his father was terribly embarrassed. His striving nearly killed him in the monastery. Once in the monastery, Luther gave himself to the monastic life with, with incredible zeal and vigor. One scholar says this, he did not simply engage in prayer, fast, and ascetic practices such as going without sleep, enduring bone-chilling cold without a blanket, and flagellating himself, that is taking a little whip and whipping his back. He pursued them earnestly. He fasted longer than anyone else. He punished his body so much through fasting that he permanently damaged his digestive tract. There's a picture of him uh, during the season. He, he looks pretty skinny. Later on in life, he was very heavy because he learned to enjoy food for the glory of God. But at this point, he's a very skinny man because he fasted so much. He prayed longer than anyone else. He confessed his sins longer than anyone else. At one point, he spent six hours in the confessional confessing his sins to his father confessor, Father Staupitz. And Father Staupitz grew tired of Luther's morbid introspection and said to him, Luther, before you confess any more sins, go out and actually sin. Then we can talk. I mean, how much sin can you commit in a monastery? Father, forgive me for coveting Brother Lawrence's mashed potatoes. But Luther understood with his finely tuned legal mind that God required perfection. How do we explain Luther's striving? Some think that Luther had serious psychological issues or serious daddy issues. Was Luther insane? Was he crazy? Was he neurotic? No. He was the only sane person in all of Germany. Because he understood what the Bible says, that God requires all of us to be perfect to get into heaven. Luther studied the law of God, and he knew that he was not perfect. And so he was rightfully terrified. Luther knew that the standard was not his fellow monks. The standard was Jesus Christ himself. And God requires us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength 24-7 and love our neighbors, ourself, which none of us can do for more than about seven seconds. As a result, we are in deep trouble. But what was the result of Luther's striving? His striving destroyed his personal rest and peace. He says this, I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. Of this all the friars who have known me can testify. If I had continued much longer, I should have carried my mortification even to death by means of my watchings, prayer, reading, and other labors." Luther strived and strived and strived to find peace, but he could not find peace for his soul. I think that describes some of us this morning. Some of you have been striving for years to find peace for your soul. Maybe you've tried drugs, immorality, alcohol, earning lots of money, 
finding the perfect wife, finding the perfect husband, having the perfect body, climbing the ladder a little bit higher, having that new house, having more cars. But none of those things will ever, ever satisfy you. And they'll make you strive more and more and more. Trying to find satisfaction in those things is like trying to grasp the wind. You can't do it. Luther could not find peace by being a really, really religious, observant monk. He just couldn't do it. His striving also made him eventually hate God. He says these interesting words. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had not confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. This is a monk saying that he hated God because he was so aware of his unrighteousness and God's righteousness. Let's be honest. Many of us have the exact opposite problem of Luther. We think, I'm a pretty good person, better than the guy next to me. I think one of Satan's greatest lies is telling each one of us, what's the big deal? Relax. God loves you just the way you are. You're really good. You're so good that God is very, very pleased with you. You don't have to put your trust in Jesus. Just keep being a religious person. I think that's one of the greatest lies Satan has ever told to the human race. Through your efforts, you can earn favor with God. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly trying to convince us that we're really pretty good people. But if we're not as righteous as Jesus Christ himself we're in deep trouble. Our unrighteousness renders us unfit for heaven. Why camp out here, Dave? Luther said this. If you see yourself as a little sinner, you will see Jesus as a little Savior. Luther got one thing right. He understood at this point that he was unrighteous. All of humanity is unrighteous. And God is perfectly righteous, and the standard is Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, Luther knew he was in trouble. At the same time, Luther catastrophically misunderstood Romans 1.17, which is what caused him so much angst. And eventually, God helped him understand what Paul was really trying to say in Romans 1.17, which brings us to the second point. So first is striving for righteousness. Second is understanding righteousness. Back to Romans 1.17. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, what does it mean, again, that God reveals his righteousness in the gospel? Let's go back to Luther's initial misunderstanding of this verse. Remember, he said, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, 
the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. I had not confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. That's where I stopped reading earlier. I listened to what he said after that. Night and day, I pondered until I saw that connection between the righteousness of God and the statement, the righteous shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Now, Luther made this great gospel discovery by studying Romans 1:17 in great detail through lots of prayer. There's a picture of Luther discovering this wonderful uh, in his uh, cloister with his finger pointed on Romans 1:17. But what was Luther's specific discovery in Romans 1:17? Again, the question is, what does it mean that God reveals his righteousness in the gospel? Grammatically, when the Apostle Paul says the righteousness of God, this is called an objective genitive, not a subjective genitive. In other words, this means a righteousness from God, not the righteousness of God. Massive difference. In the gospel, God gives us his righteousness. It's a righteousness from God, not God displaying his righteousness in judging us. By the way, Luther discovered this life-changing grammatical insight by studying the Greek text of Erasmus recently compiled before the Reformation. The old saying goes that Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. So that Greek testament was very, very significant for Luther because he was able to see in the original language that Paul was using here um, an objective genitive, not a subjective genitive, which makes all the difference in the world. Where does this righteousness come from? that comes to us in the gospel. This righteousness comes to us directly from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is credited to our account. Theologians call this imputation. God credits to us the perfect spotless law-keeping of Jesus. Consider the context of Romans 1.17. From Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20, roughly those three chapters, the Apostle Paul lays out the unrighteousness of the world. Paul says, 
The Jew is unrighteous. The Gentile are unrighteous. Chapter 3, everyone's unrighteous. That's the bad news. Then in 321, he goes back to the gospel and he says this. In light of all that unrighteousness, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness comes to us not through effort, but through faith. Christ's perfection is given to us through faith. In Philippians 3 9, the Apostle Paul says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This righteousness, again, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, no matter what you've done, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are currently robed in Christ's righteousness. Through your union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, God sees you right now as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. No matter what you've done, in your life, or this morning, or this weekend, or what you're going to do next week, or in 10 years, God sees you as he sees his own son. He sees you as a perfect law keeper, which means someday you will enter the gates of paradise. And right now you can have a relationship with Almighty God. Well, Dave, I understand that the righteousness of Christ can be mine, but how? How does that happen? That brings us to the third and final point. So striving for righteousness, understanding righteousness, and third is receiving righteousness. Receiving righteousness. How do we receive God's verdict of righteous. How are you and I justified or declared to be righteous even though we are not? Well, Paul tells us very clearly in our text. Back to verse 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Two really important phrases that Paul uses here at the end of verse 17. He says, from faith for faith. This means by faith from first to last, which is how the NIV translates this. Or through faith entirely. In other words, it is entirely through faith without effort, without merit, without the tiniest shred or modicum of works, you and I can be declared righteous. And the very last phrase of verse 17, the Apostle Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. And our literal translation is this, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Both phrases hammer home the point that there is nothing that we can do to earn the verdict of righteous through our efforts. We can only be declared righteous, that is justified, through faith alone. Faith is the instrumental cause of our justification. 
And by the way, we are not saved based on the strength of our faith. If we were, we'd all be in trouble because our faith fluctuates from day to day, doesn't it? We are saved by Christ, and faith is the instrument that brings Christ to us. The word faith is used 25 times in Romans 1 to 4. Paul really, really wants us to understand this because Paul knows that all of us are prone to think that we can earn this. So Paul hammers home this point repeatedly. As a result, he ends this section with these glorious words, Romans 3, 27 to 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works, no, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, that is declared righteous, by faith apart from works of the law. Now in Luther's own translation, he added the word alone after faith in verse 28 because that's there in the context. We are not declared righteous by faith plus something else. Faith plus going to church, faith plus avoiding bad language, faith plus giving money to the church, faith plus reading our Bibles, faith plus prayer. We are justified by faith alone plus nothing. We are declared righteous the moment we believe the gospel. Justification is not a process where after years and years and years of effort, we're finally righteous. The moment we believe the gospel, we are instantaneously declared righteous. Luther said that we, all, we are simul justus et peccator, Latin phrase. We are simultaneously both righteous and unrighteous at the same time because even though we are practically speaking unrighteous, God sees us as righteous the moment we believe. And this means that Satan's accusations cannot harm us. Satan loves to tell us one of two things. Either you're not that bad or you're really, really bad. And God's not going to forgive you. Who do you think you are? You call yourself a Christian and you've sinned this way, the same way for the last 20 years? God doesn't love you. God doesn't forgive you. You're a dirty, rotten, guilty sinner. Who's heard that before from Satan? Okay, a couple of us have. I think all of us have, if we're honest. So there's this walking loop I go on. I've walked this loop for many years. It's up in Camelot, the Camelot neighborhood. And every time I walk towards this house to walk around a corner, every time without fail, this huge dog comes charging towards me. Angry, barking, growling, saliva everywhere, and he wants to bite my head off every time without fail. Comes charging right towards me. But there's a massive chain link fence between me and this dog. And I love to taunt this dog, which I probably shouldn't do. But there is nothing this dog can do to me. No matter how loud he barks, he can't touch me. No matter how loud Satan yells at you, 
barks at you, growls at you, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. Those words mean nothing because you're robed in Christ's righteousness. And through faith, God has declared you righteous, as righteous as his own son. What is faith? Faith is a wholehearted trust in Jesus. Faith is more than just believing facts about justification. Someone who's justified is personally trusting in Jesus to justify them, and that personal trust eventually leads to action in that person's life. If someone really believes the gospel, their life will be transformed. But that transformation is not the grounds of our justification. It's just the evidence that our faith is real. Well, Luther strove for righteousness. It nearly killed him. Luther eventually understood righteousness. And then finally, Luther received righteousness. The year was 1521, exactly 500 years ago. And four years after Luther posted his 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. The place was the Imperial Diet of Worms. A diet was a massive council. Worms was the city in Germany. At this particular council, the most important people in Europe were present. Luther was summoned by the most powerful man in Europe, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. So the emperor was there. All the Spanish guards were there. Important church leaders were there. And Luther was summoned to that trial to give an account for his heretical views. And Luther knew church history. Luther was not dumb. Luther knew what happened to heretics in the Middle Ages. A hundred years before Luther, Jan Hus was burned at the stake for very similar reasons. So Luther knew that going to this council or this diet was going to potentially be incredibly costly for him. But he was promised safe conduct, and so he went. And at the Diet of Worms, Luther walked into a massive room. There's a picture of this. The room was a lot bigger than that, historically. There were two levels. In the upper level, um, there were hundreds of people um, watching the events unfold. So he shows up. He's on the floor, surrounded by heads of state, leaders of the church, soldiers. When Luther was brought before this massive council, he was first asked, are all these books yours? You can kind of see there's a little table there. It's not really big enough. Uh, but Luther was an incredibly prolific author. He wrote a massive amount of words that he published. And so people doubted, did, 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 could one man actually write all these things? So he was asked, are all these writings yours? And he said, yes. Then he was asked by the prosecutor, will you recant of these writings? And he said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I, I, I thought I was asked here to debate these ideas with you. And the prosecutor was told, do not let Luther debate because he's very wise and he will win the debate. Luther was very good with words. So he was told to silence Luther as quickly as possible. So he, he said to Luther, Luther, you can only say one of two things. I recant or I don't recant. So will you recant of these writings? And Luther was a mere man. He was a mortal. 
And so he asked for a day to think and pray. So the once bold and courageous Luther is now seen to be human. Because again, he knew what was at stake. Imagine being put to death by fire. It would not be a pleasant experience. So Luther went away into his jail cell that night, and he prayed earnestly for grace and strength and courage to take a stand for what he knew was the Bible's teaching on justification and Scripture. So the next day, he's brought back before this massive council. It's even rowdier the second day, and he's asked once again, Luther, will you recant of these writings? And he uttered this famous reply, Unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open, clear, and distinct grounds of reasoning, then I cannot and will not recant, because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. After he uttered these words, the Spanish guards yelled out, in unison, to the flames, to the flames. And miraculously, Luther escaped that event and went on to lead the church for a few more decades. But with these words, the Protestant church was born, and the history of Western civilization was forever altered. What gave Luther such incredible courage and boldness. Why was he willing to give up his life? Why was he willing to take a stand against the most powerful people in Europe? Because Luther understood that his greatest fear had been assuaged. He knew that he would be justified, declared righteous through faith alone. He knew that he was no longer an object of God's holy and righteous wrath. Therefore, he had great confidence. He was very courageous. He knew that his worst fear had been dealt with. If you're a Christian, you too have been delivered from the wrath of God. You too will be declared righteous on the day of judgment. If that's true, what can man do to you? Nothing. Dave, they can torture us. They can kill us. Okay. Then you'll spend a trillion years in glory with a glorified resurrection body in the presence of Almighty God. I hope and pray that God raises up more people like Luther who so understand the gospel that they are fearless in the face of danger. What can your friends do to you? What can your coworkers do to you? What can your family do to you? Nothing. In light of that, shouldn't we be courageous? in proclaiming to a lost and dying world that they too can be declared righteous through faith. And all those declared righteous through faith, when they die, will be ushered in to paradise. And if that's true, we have nothing to fear. Let's pray.
Father, we are so thankful that you raised up Martin Luther to rediscover the gospel. Lord, what a privilege today to celebrate these monumentous events in church history. Father, we pray that you would help us to fully embrace the doctrine of justification through faith alone. Lord, may the knowledge of the gospel give us hope this week, give us courage this week, and give us joy this week. And Lord, help us to follow Luther's example of courage. We need courage more and more as our culture unravels. Give us courage to tell a lost and dying world about you. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.